Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Mary and Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. Today we are jumping back into the sermon series we began last fall on the life of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. And it's going to take us a couple years to work all the way through the Gospel of Luke. From time to time we'll take a break like we did for the month of January when I preached five messages I believe God laid on my heart for the beginning of the year. And before that, back in the end of November, beginning of December, we covered the beginning of Luke all the information about Luke's introduction and all the things that led up to Jesus being born. We wrapped up the year um, with a message about the shepherd's response to being born. You know, what the shepherds did. And so that brings us up to where we are today. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 2 and starting in verse 21 in just a moment. So the, the series is the story of Jesus from the gospel of Luke. I want to ask you a question to get started. How many of you like to wait? You might be thinking, wait for what? How do you like to wait for anything? I mean, just the word itself has the connotation of, I would rather that things were accomplished. I would rather that I was there. I would rather that it happened. I would rather, but I'm having to wait. Now, I'm talking about weight that's not resting. If you're waiting and resting at the same time and you need to rest, that can be helpful. But in general, I don't like to wait. The question I want to ask you to follow up is, what do you do while you're waiting? What do you do while you're waiting? I'll be honest with you, I can't stand being in a situation where I have to wait and I have no way to do something productive. That's why I love my smartphone. It has nothing to do with um, loving technology or even social media or whatever, but if I've got my phone on me, I don't ever have to worry for something to do. You know, and I'm not just playing games. I do play little games sometimes if I'm having to wait a short period of time. But I've got the current three or four books, because I'm always reading three or four books at the same time. I've got all those on my phone, okay? I've got my whole biblical library and commentaries on my phone, so if I'm in a situation that I know ahead of time that I've got to wait or it just catches my, me by surprise, if I've got my phone, I can read, I can study, I can play a little game because I don't like to wait and it be unproductive. I don't like to waste time. As I said, when I, it's time to rest, I like to rest, but I don't like to waste time. Now, here's one last question. Well, I'm sorry, two more questions. What do you do while you're waiting on God. What do you do while you're waiting on God? Well, what do we wait on God for? A number of things. Sometimes we're waiting on God because we've been praying about something and we don't have an answer or a clear answer yet. Now, we've always said God always answers. Yes, no, maybe, later, do this first. But sometimes you're praying about something and you don't have... So you're waiting on God for the answer. Sometimes we're waiting on God for the fulfillment of a promise. We have a promise from his word or a promise that we believe he's given to us personally. And we're praying about it, but we're waiting because we haven't seen the fulfillment yet. Sometimes we're waiting on God because we're going through life and we just don't know exactly what he's going to do next. And we're just kind of waiting to see what God's going to do next in our lives. Sometimes we're waiting on God because we want to hear what he wants us to do next in our lives. And that can be a lot of different things. If we're thinking about making a job change or we're in that time of our life where we're graduating from school or going to go to college, we've got to decide on a career, and we're just waiting, hopefully we're waiting, to hear from God about what he thinks about that. Those are the four main things I could think of, but maybe you could think of some other things that mean that we're waiting on God. So what do you do while you're waiting on God? And that's the focus of what I want to look at today. The title of my message is While You Wait. While You Wait. We're going to be looking at a story in Luke chapter 2 
verses 21 to 39, and we're going to read it a little bit at a time as we work our way through. And in this story, we see three instances of people waiting. Three instances of people waiting. So let's just jump right in and look at these people that are waiting and what they're waiting for and how they respond and what they do in the meantime while they are waiting. And I think God can give us some real insight on things we should be doing while we're waiting. While we're waiting on God or waiting for God. No matter why we're waiting, answer to prayer, you know, uh, provision of a promise, you know, fulfillment of a promise, or, or what is he getting ready to do, or what does he want me to do? Whatever your reason is for waiting, because chances are, in life, most of the time, as we go through life, we are waiting on God for something. Maybe several somethings. So I think this passage will have some interesting things to tell us. So the first one is, we see Mary and Joseph waited for the outworking of God's plan. Mary and Joseph waited for the outworking of God's plan. Now, think about the situation with Mary and Joseph. We're so familiar with the story Went through it, end of last year, the whole Christmas story, the unusual circumstances. Mary engaged, betrothed to Joseph. Angel Gabriel shows up and says, you are highly favored by God. God has specially chosen you to give birth to a son. And she, all kinds of promises and and high and lofty things about this son. We're going to go over them in just a minute. And uh, she says, well, how can that happen? You know, I'm not married. I've never been with a man. Uh, you know, she got the sense that it wasn't going to be with Joseph. And, and he says, God's going to do it. Okay? You know, nothing is impossible with God. And, and for her credit, we talked about this a couple months ago. She said, you know what? Whatever God wants, I'm up for that. Now, that's a paraphrase. Okay? But that's the attitude. Whatever God wants. I'm his servant. He can do whatever he wants in me and through me. In spite of concerns she might have, because if this is all true, she had no reason to doubt it. This angel from God shows up and tells her, Joseph could abandon her, could divorce her, because in that day and age when you were betrothed, which is similar to engagement, you had to actually go through a divorce to break it up. By law, he could have her stoned, although they didn't usually do that during that time in history. She could be rejected, would probably be rejected by her family and friends. Be looked down upon as a very immoral woman because who's going to believe her when she says, God got me pregnant? Okay? That. And then, you know, Joseph was wanting to divorce her, but he loved her so much he didn't want to embarrass her. He was just going to do it quietly and just go on with life. And so Gabriel went to talk to him, told him the same thing. He says, Listen, this is God. She's going to have a baby. It's going to be a very special baby. You need to name him Jesus. And the angel told Mary the same thing. Very unusual situation. And then, of course, they travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem, 60, 70 miles for the taxation, the census. And the baby is born in a stable and placed in a manger. All unusual circumstances. But yet very familiar, so we've gotten kind of eh about it. But think about Mary and Joseph now that Jesus has been born. What are they thinking? What are they wondering? I mean, Gabriel told Joseph that this baby would save his people from their sins. Gabriel told Mary that this baby was going to be great. That he was going to be the son of the Most High. That he would sit on the throne of his father David. That he would reign over the house of Jacob forever. That of his kingdom there would be no end and he would be called the Son of God. I mean, what more could you say about how special this baby is? They probably didn't have a full understanding of what all that meant, but they knew it meant something big. So what are Mary and Joseph thinking about? What do we do now? We've got this baby. Uh, You know, it's a baby. It acts like a baby. It drinks like a baby. It eats like a baby. It does other things like a baby. Sleeps like a baby. But it's supposed to be this really special baby. How is it going to get to that point of where it is now to its specialness? And what part do we play in that? And so you've got to be wondering, what are they thinking? They're Okay, well... 
God put him in our home specifically, deliberately, what are we supposed to do? Now, the Bible doesn't say anything about their wondering or how they want to. I'm sure they prayed and they were like, did some really seriously. What are we supposed to do? with? I mean, obviously, it's their baby. They've got to take care of it. They've got to protect it. Jesus came into the world like any other baby. He wasn't like superhuman, supernatural powers and all that kind of stuff. They had to take care of this baby, and so they did. But what did Mary and Joseph do while they were waiting on God to outwork his plan? Because it's obvious God had a plan for this baby. What did they do? Well, we have a little glimpse of what they did immediately in this story. So let's jump to the story now. Luke chapter 2 down to verse 21. Verse 20 talks about the shepherds going back to their field after having seen the baby Jesus in the manger, in the stable, glorifying God and and all that kind of stuff. And so at the very next verse, in verse 21, it says, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem, which is just a couple miles from Bethlehem, to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, a lot of that stuff doesn't mean very much to us at least on a practical sense, because we don't do any of that stuff. I mean, granted, we may have our sons circumcised or whatever. We won't get into the depth of that. But I'm just saying, other than the rest of the stuff, it doesn't really mean a whole lot to us. But it was very, very important to God's people throughout their history, and especially at this time, that these were things that God had said were to be done. And we're not going to dig deeply into each of these. You can study them on your own. But look exactly at what Mary and Joseph did because these are the first steps of what they were doing while they were waiting on God to carry out his plan for this baby and they were to take care of the baby. First thing we see is they named him Jesus. You say that's obvious. You know, I mean that's that's who he is, Jesus. And and the angel had told them. He told both of them. He told Joseph in his dream and he had told Mary in his visitation to her specifically, you are to call his name Jesus. Jesus means God saves or God is savior. God will save me. It's all about the savior. That's why he was to be named Jesus. But I think it's significant they named him Jesus. Now, granted, if we had a message from God through an angel, we'd probably do what the angel said, especially something so easy as just naming a child. But what I, wanted to, what I want to point out is that even in the easy things, but also in the hard things, they were obedient. They wanted to please God. They did what was right. They did what God told them to do. They named him Jesus. It says, on the eighth day, which was prescribed by the Jewish law, they took Jesus to be circumcised. It wasn't just a physical act. It wasn't just something they did medically for any particular medical reason, but it goes all the way back to when God called Abraham to be the foundation of his people, of the family that would grow to the nation that would be his people, all the way back in Genesis 17. He said one of the signs, the actual physical outward sign that people are a part of my people is that all of the male sons are to be circumcised. He says, in fact, if any one of your descendants has a male son and they do not circumcise them, he is not part of my people. He said, if there are people that do not have ancestry, going back to Abraham, people from other nations, and they want to become a part of my people, which was always God's plan. God's plan was always that his people would so shine the light of goodness about their relationship with God that the other people would want to come and be part of those people. He says, if a male wants to become part of it, he must be circumcised. It was an outward manifestation of a commitment to and a relationship with the King of kings and Lord of lords, the God, the only one true God. Similar to the fact that Jesus asked us when we follow him to be baptized. It's not just a physical act of getting wet. It's an outward demonstration of the commitment 
to the relationship we now have with Jesus Christ and part of his family. And so they did that. They circumcised Jesus again. Why? That's what God wanted. That's what he had stipulated. So they did that to please God and to obey him. It says the next thing that they did is they brought a purification offering. And again, we're not to dig deeply into this, but uh, when a woman had a child, they were considered impure, but not impure in the sense of being sinful or anything like that because anything that had to do with blood and all that kind of stuff, male or female, would make you impure and you had to go through a time of purification because the life is in the blood and it gets deep. You can get into that. But the woman had to go through a time of purification, a time of, she she had to be away from everything else. Um, You know, she had to be, um, couldn't go to the temple, couldn't be around holy things. And and the initial part of that was for seven days. Then there was another um, 30 days, a total of 40 days um, for a male child. And, you know, some people say, well, why did God do that? Can I tell you something? I believe that part of that was God's gift to women. After you had a baby, you didn't have any major responsibilities. You got to rest, take care of the baby, regain your strength, and then after about a month, month and a half, you would go through this ritual, just shows that you have committed your child to God, you're committing yourself to God, you go through this purification thing, and then you're back into regular life again. But they said that's what God required. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, if you want to follow up on that. If that's what God requires, that's what we're going to do. We want to please God. We want to do what's right. We want to be obedient. And then a little side note here. It says that they specifically brought um, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. God actually asked for a lamb to be sacrificed for purification. But if you were, did not have enough money to purchase a lamb, in other words, if you were among the poor of the people, then you could bring these birds, which shows us that Jesus didn't come from some rich family. Okay. All right, so they offered the purification offering, and then the next thing they did is they um, dedicated Jesus, just like we dedicate babies. In fact, we dedicate babies for one of the main reasons is on the, on the example we have of Jesus. Now, there was a whole ritual that they went through back then. Jesus was the firstborn, okay? And you can go all the way back to the story of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt and Exodus and the Passover and how the death angel would come through and put to death all the firstborn unless the lamb was slain and the blood put on the doorpost. And from that point on, God said, because I delivered all the firstborn from now on throughout all history, all the firstborns are dedicated to me. They belong to me. But you're going to take care of them. So when they reach a certain age, you're to bring a sacrifice an offering to God, and then that would take their place, and they'd be given back to you to take care of them. Just like we often dedicate babies, saying they're from God, but God has given them to us to take care of. And so, and you can read all about that in Exodus 13 and 34 and Numbers 18, and if you didn't get all that, you can ask me later if you really want to dig deeply into this. But again, this is what God wanted. This is what being part of God's people was. This is what it meant to be obedient. This is what it meant to try to please God. The last thing I want to point out, all the way at the end of our passage, we didn't read it yet, but verse 39, after all the things we're looking at today, in verse 39, it says, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. In other words, they did everything that they knew that God wanted them to do. So what did Mary and Joseph do? They did what God asked them to, what they knew they were supposed to do. They, they continued their lifestyle of pleasing God, of walking in obedience. Now, I can only speculate what happened from that point on, and that is I believe they probably prayed, God, show us how to care for your son. Show us how to raise this child that's so special so he can fulfill all the things you have planned for him. Show us step by step by step. And that involved a lot of everyday life walking with God and seeking to please him. Next week, we're going to look at the next episode in Jesus' life, and he's 12 years old. We don't have anything in between. And the family is traveling to Jerusalem from Nazareth for one of the great festivals, which was something God asked of his people. They were still being obedient to what God had asked. So what did they do? They did what they knew to do and waited for further instructions. They were obedient, and they wanted to please God. 
So, so how does that apply to us? When you're waiting for God to work out his plan in you, whatever that means, you're seeking him about direction, your future, decisions you need to make, just going through life, and you're waiting on God until you hear specifically, and even when you hear specifically, just keep walking with him. Just keep seeking to please him. Just keep walking in obedience. You know, Jesus said several times, and then the Apostle John wrote in his writings that one of the key things that show that we really do love God is that we obey him. In fact, it's not negotiable and it's not optional. He says, if you really love God, you will obey him. If you don't obey him, you might not be really loving God. It's not a legalistic thing. It's in our relationship with God. And He's the boss. You know, like Mary said, when the angel showed up, whatever God wants, that's what I want to give him. That's what I want to happen. The second waiting circumstance we see is Simeon, a man that we haven't heard of yet. Not this Simeon anyway. And we will not hear of again in the rest of Scripture. But a man who is there that day when they bring Jesus to the temple. Simeon waited for God's promises to be fulfilled. Simeon waited for God's promises to be fulfilled. As I said, that's one of the situations under which we can relate to. We read God's word. There are promises he's made to his people. We're convinced this is a promise that God has given to us. We haven't seen the fulfillment yet, so we are waiting and hopefully praying along the way. That's what we should be doing. We're waiting for God to fulfill his promise. Well, let's take a look here at Luke 2, verses 25 and 26, first of all. Let me turn there, okay? So right after the offering they give for Mary's purification, verse 25, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, let me explain a couple things here. This man named Simeon lived in Jerusalem, which is where the temple was, righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Kind of a technical term, a poetic description of saying waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the deliverer. The Messiah was, um, as we said before, it says waiting for the Lord's Christ. He said he would not um, see death till he'd seen the Lord's Christ. Christ means Messiah. It means anointed one. It's not just Jesus' last, it, not, it isn't Jesus' last name, Okay. And the Messiah was the one that God's people have been waiting for for hundreds of years because God had promised he would send someone, a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of David, who would become the new king, and he would set up God's kingdom, and he would make everything right. And Jesus will. Still, many of it, much of it's still to come. But God had promised Simeon that he would not die until he had actually seen the fulfillment of God's promise. So Simeon is waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled. Two promises. God's promise to his people that he was going to send the Christ. He was going to send the Messiah. He was going to send the anointed one. The one who would take care of the sin problem and eventually establish God's kingdom on earth. He promised Simeon he'd see him. And the second promise was to Simeon himself, that he would be alive to see him, that God would send that, the promise of the Messiah, and the promise that Simeon would see him. Now, some people assume, because of what it says here, that Simeon was an old man, and he may very well have been. We don't know. But he could have been a younger man. God had made him this promise that he would see the Messiah. And when he, found, when he saw Jesus and the Holy Spirit made it clear that Jesus was the one, he says, you know what? The purpose of my life has been fulfilled. I'm ready, Lord, whenever you want to take me home. He could have done that as an older man. He could have done it as a younger man because he had received the thing that was most important to him that God had promised him. doesn't matter whether he's old or young. Look at verses 27 because it goes on from there. He has a big role in this chapter, in this part of the chapter, okay? After that promise that God had given him, in verse 27 it says, He came in the Spirit. That means that the Spirit led him to come that day and that time into the temple. And when the parents, talking about Joseph and Mary, and I, we know that Joseph wasn't his literal father, but Luke is relating the relationship here. He's already made it clear that 
Joseph had nothing to do with the conception. And later when he talks about the genealogy, he's going to make it clear that Jesus is Mary's son. But he says, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God. And he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Very poetic. In fact, it is actual poetry. And Simeon says, God, you kept your promise. Here's the Messiah. I'm holding him in my arms. I'm ready to go, Lord. Anytime you want to take me, go ahead and take me. I'll depart in peace because you've kept your promise. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus is salvation, not the provider of salvation, not the purchaser of salvation. Those are true, but he is salvation. He said, Lord, you've let me see your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. The first place in Luke where it talks about how Jesus came not just for the Jewish people, but for all people. That he would be a light that shines in the darkness of people that have no knowledge of God. But he's also the fulfillment of all the promises and things that God has done for his people. So he would be the glory of his people Israel. He says, God, you kept your promise. I'm ready. But he has a little addendum to what he said. He turns to Mary and Joseph. It says here that his father and his mother, Mary and Joseph, marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. In other words, people are going to have different opinions about Jesus. And the impact Jesus has on their lives will either raise them up or cast them down. For the people that accepted Jesus and who he was, They would have salvation for those that would reject him, would be rejecting God's plan. He's appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And we're certainly going to see that in Jesus' story. And you've read it before if you've read it. So many people opposed him. And then he turns to Mary and he says, A sword will pierce through your own soul also. There's two words for sword. That are used in the Bible. One is a small dagger-like sword. Another one is a big giant thing. This is the word for the big giant thing. Simeon saying, Mary, Jesus is going to be a blessing. He's God's promised one. You're blessed to be his mother. But there's going to be a lot of pain involved. We're going to see that as we go through his story. You may remember it times Jesus was rejected and of course the worst pain of all to see him tortured and crucified and killed the good news is you got to see him resurrected too but still the pain can't even imagine what kind of pain that would be for a mother he says a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed in other words people have to make a decision about Jesus and that wasn't true just then it's true today Many of you have already made a decision about Jesus. Many of you online have made a decision about Jesus. Some of you are still wrestling with that decision. Who is Jesus? Is he really what everybody says the Bible says he is? Is he really God? You know, all that kind of stuff. And we've been saying all along, that's one of the reasons Luke wrote his gospel, was to get the truth out there so people could examine it for themselves. And that's what we've been challenging you also as we go through this series to look at the evidence Decide for yourself who Jesus is because your eternity hangs in the balance. So Simeon rejoiced in the fulfillment of the prophecy. He gave a little insight into what Jesus was going to be doing revealed by the Holy Spirit and gave Mary a little warning about the fact that it might be a little difficult. So what did Simeon do while waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled? What was God's promise? Again, he promised to send the Messiah. That was for the whole nation. But he also promised Simeon that he would live until he saw the Messiah. How long was that time in between from when God promised it to him by the Holy Spirit to where he saw it? Could have been a couple of years. It could have been a couple of decades. It could have been many decades. 
if, as it seems to indicate, he's an older man, because it seems like he's at the end of his life, I'm ready to go now. What did he do while he was waiting? You talk about waiting for a promise of God to be fulfilled. If it was decades, some of you had that, haven't you? There's certain promises that maybe God's given you, and you may still be waiting for them to be fulfilled. And it's been a long time. Well, what did Simeon do while he waited? Well, the scriptures don't mention specific acts or things that he did, but the description of Simeon tells us a little bit about what he did while he waited. First of all, we know he lived a righteous life because it says he was a righteous man. What does that mean? It means that he wanted to do what was right in the sight of God. And most of the time when that word is used in Scripture, it's talking about specifically in how you relate to other people. It does how you relate to God and not sinning and that kind of stuff, but it's really talking about doing what's right in the way you treat other people. So Simeon lived a righteous life. Not only that, but he lived a devout life. It says he was righteous and he was devout. What does devout mean? Well, I kind of got an idea what that means, but I had to look it up on my Bible dictionary. And the the Bible dictionary says that that word devout means that he was reverent toward God and took seriously God, his promises, and his word. Okay? So he had a relationship with God. He took it seriously. He was righteous. He was devout. He lived a righteous life. He lived a devout life. Not only that, he lived a spirit-led life. Now, we hear that and say, you know what? You know, I know I don't necessarily always sense him, but I know God's spirit lives in me. If you're a Christian, because God's word says that when we know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we surrender our lives to him. We put our trust and faith in him that God's spirit comes to dwell within us. So we're used to that idea, even if we don't fully comprehend what that means and how it works out. But as we said many times, that wasn't the way it was before Jesus. God's spirit was active in the world, but God's spirit did not come to dwell within people hardly ever. But from time to time, when God had a specific purpose for a specific person, it was usually a king or a prophet or a judge. It would say that the spirit of God came upon them to anoint them to speak or to do. And sometimes the spirit would only come on for a short time and then leave. But we see here that Simeon had an intimate relationship with God's Spirit, and God's Spirit was deeply involved in his life. And, and, and if you've been following along when we started this last fall, this is a theme of Luke of how God's Spirit is intimately involved in God's plan. God's Spirit is mentioned in relationship to Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, and John the Baptist himself, and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, and he's involved in the whole conception of Jesus. And, and we're going to see the Holy Spirit mentioned all through the Gospel of Luke and on into Acts, which is a second book that Luke wrote. is all about the work of the Holy Spirit in and through the church. And so He's pointing that out wherever he can. And Simeon was a man who was spirit-led. He was spirit-led. He listened to the Spirit's voice. He followed the Spirit's leading. It said that it was through the Spirit. Let me find it here. I'm sorry. It says the Holy Spirit was upon him. And the Holy Spirit had revealed to him about the fact that he wouldn't die till he saw the Christ. And it was the Holy Spirit that led him to the temple that day to be there at the right time. He was spirit-led. And then the last thing we see about how, what Simeon did while he waited is he shared God's message. We see an instance of it here. He's, he's sharing it with, with Mary and Joseph. But I can't help but believe that he was always sharing God's message. So what did Simeon do while he waited for God's promise to be fulfilled? For all those many years, probably, He lived a righteous life, tried to do the right thing. Same thing we saw with Mary and Joseph. He lived a devout life, reverent, taking God and his relationship with him seriously. He lived a spirit-led life. And he shared God's message. Well, how does this apply to us today? When you're waiting for God to fulfill his promises, when I'm waiting, we just need to keep on living for Jesus. We need to keep on walking with Jesus. We need to keep on living for God. We need to seek to do the right thing with God and with others. We need to seek to be devout. In other words, close relationship with God, taking Him seriously. We need to be Spirit-led, and we need to share God's message. The third and last episode of waiting we have in this story is a lady named Anna. 
And Anna waited for the end of her life. Now, that sounds depressing. That sounds terrible. I don't mean it that way. Okay? Let's read a couple verses here, then I'll explain what I mean by that. Anna waited for the end of her life. Look at verse 36. Right after um, Simeon had revealed and said what he did to um, Mary and Joseph, and she may have walked up even while he was saying this, but in verse 36 it says, There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. Now, now let me stop right there and just say this. The Greek in that is a little bit, it's got a couple different ways it can be translating. It either says that, you know, she was a virgin until she got married, then she was married for seven years, and then her husband died, and she's now 84. Or it could mean, the way it's worded, is that she was a virgin until she got married, she was married for seven years, her husband died, and she lived 84 more years, which would put her over 100 years old, probably. Any case, she was older. We won't call her old because we don't call anybody old. You know that. I say we got older people in our church, but we don't have any old people in our church, okay? But she was older, all right? And I said, Anna waited for the end of her life. Now, again, that sounds strange, but I don't mean she's waiting for it to be over. I don't mean that she's just suffering along. I don't mean that she's like, oh, I can't wait until I go. Uh, I don't mean that she's just biding her time. What I'm saying and what we see here is that she's waiting for the end of her life, but in the meantime, she's not wasting any time. She is active. She's doing stuff. Well, what is she doing? Let's take a look at it. Verse 37, then as a widow till she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. You see, Simeon's not the only one that's waiting. Anna's not the All of God's people are waiting for this Messiah to come. And she begins to give the good news. I mentioned earlier, I hate unproductive waiting. I hate having to wait and not being able to do what I need and want to do. And that's Anna's attitude too. She's waiting for the end of her life. She's getting older and older and older. She knows one day she'll die. But she's not just sitting twiddling her thumbs. She's like a lot of you in our church that you're older. You're not old. I've told you that, okay? But you're older, but you are so active in the church, in the community, in other things. And I commend you. You're being just like Anna. Now, I'm not going to say you're just waiting till the end of your life, but to be honest with you, we all are, aren't we? I'm in the midst of waiting till the end of my life. I hope it's a long time from now, but I want the time in between to be productive. You all have the same attitude. Anna had that attitude. What did she do while waiting for the end of her life? She fulfilled God's call on her life. What was God's call on her life? You may have missed it. It said that she was a prophetess. That's a very technical term. There's only about seven or eight prophetesses in the whole Bible. Lots of prophets. Now, I'm talking about seven or eight that are named by name. Because in the New Testament, it talks about prophetesses being in the church. Okay. But there's only like six, seven, eight that are named by name. Lots of prophets. What's a prophet? We often think it's somebody that tells the future because God reveals it to them. That's not what that means. Sometimes prophets and prophetesses would share the future because that's the message God gave to them. But to be a prophet meant literally that you spoke for God. Not in a sense of a preacher or a teacher. In a very real sense, a preacher or a teacher, if they proclaim God's word faithfully, they're speaking for God. But in the sense that God gave them a specific message to give to an individual or a nation or the world. And I want you to understand something else. We mentioned this a long time ago. That until Jesus showed up, the last time a prophet had spoken was 400 years before. The prophet Malachi. The last time it was mentioned. And here is this woman. She has a calling on her life. She is a prophetess. That means that God would speak to her and she would speak what God said. So while Anna's waiting... 84, 104, whatever she is, all along the way, she's been speaking for God. She's been fulfilling God's call. She shared God's message with people. And the very conclusion of this 
story. She's sharing the good news. The Messiah has come. Here he is. We see also that she lived a spiritually disciplined life. And she was very concerned about her relationship with God. It mentions three things that she was always doing. She was always worshiping God. She was always praying. She was always fasting. Three things that she could do to maintain, to strengthen her relationship with God. She was spiritually devout. She was spiritually disciplined. She had this close relationship. It wasn't just ritual for her. It's obvious. And the other thing is she lived in God's presence. Now, all the other things add up to that. It it adds to that, the, the worship, the prayer, the fasting. But she lived in God's presence. It said that she was in the temple. So she did not depart from the temple. Now, that can mean two things, one of two things. It could mean that she actually stayed in the temple all the time, which means she must have had some place to sleep. There's no archaeological or biblical references to any place in the temple where widows could sleep. But maybe she had found some place. Maybe she was serving in a way that they allowed her to sleep there somehow. But it could also just mean that she was always there whenever the doors were open. It says she never departed. You know, it says the same thing about the apostles in the book of Acts. And they didn't spend the night there. It just says that they were, um, you know, they were always in the temple. Okay? Uh, used a very similar phrase here. So it could be that she actually had a place to stay there. Or it could just be that she went home every night to sleep. She got up in the morning went right back to the temple, which was the place of the presence of God. Because she wanted to be in the presence of God. And it was in the presence of God that she fulfilled the call of God on her life and maintained that relationship. Now, how does this apply to us today? Well, don't ask us if we can set you up a cot here at the church. Doesn't mean you have to be here 24-7. Doesn't necessarily mean you've got to be here every time the doors are open. You're welcome to be. But what it means is that while we're waiting for the end of our life, and we're all in that process, even our youngest people, you know, life's going to be over someday, right? It may be another 70, 80, however many years, but we're all in the process of living, which is waiting to the end of our life. What are we going to do while we're waiting for the end of our life? I believe we should take Anna as a challenge to say, I'm going to fulfill God's purposes for me. And not just because I have to or because it's the right thing, but because I want a close relationship with him and I want to do whatever it is that I can do and need to do to maintain a relationship with God. And today it doesn't mean that for that to receive it, for that to happen at its ultimate way that I have to live at church, but I want to live in the presence of God. Now you can't get out of the presence of God because God's everywhere, but I mean aware of the presence of God being responsive to the presence of God. So, in this story, worship team, you can come. In this story, we have people waiting on God. I find it very interesting, and I think it's deliberate. You have young and old. You have male and female. You have people that are intimately involved in Jesus in his life, his parents. And you have people that are representative of the people of God, the whole nation. They're waiting on God. They're waiting for different reasons. But there's a lot of similarity in what they did while they were waiting. And even though I pointed it out as we went along, I just want to summarize it for us today. And I'm just praying that God will challenge me with it. I'm praying that he'll challenge you with it too. What should we do while we're waiting on God? And I'm just going to give you the list because I've already explained them. Just a list and a couple of comments. Whatever the reason is for waiting for you, and you may have several things you're waiting on, whether you're waiting on an answer to prayer, whether you're waiting on a fulfillment to a promise, whether you're just waiting to see what he's going to do next in your life, or you're waiting and asking God, what do you want me to do next in my life? Let me give you four things here. Do what God tells you to do in his word. Live a life of obedience. Learn God's word. Learn how it applies to your life. Not just in general. Learn what God has to say about your relationships. Learn what God has to say about your marriage. Learn what God has to say about how you are a worker in the workplace. 
Learn what God's word has to say about how you perform in school. Now, there's no mention of school, but there's some great principles that are there. Learn what God's word has to say about your future relationships. If you're single or any other kind, but especially if you're single and hoping to find a spouse. Learn what God's word says for you to do about your money. You know what? Any important area of your life, God has something to say about it. It may not be a lot of little details, but he's got some great principles. Do what God tells you to do in his word. Second thing, do what God leads you to do by his spirit. Now, let me be very quick to say, God will never lead you to do something by his spirit that contradicts what he's already told you to do in his word. God does not contradict himself. God's not, by his spirit, going to lead a believer to get married to an unbeliever because he already makes it clear that's not his plan. God's not going to lead a believer to go out and be unfaithful to their spouse. Anything he's already revealed, he's not going to contradict that. But God will lead us day by day. And I don't mean that he's going to tell you what clothes to wear in the morning and what you have to eat for breakfast. I'm just saying in the significant areas of life, God will speak to us through his word. But if we are open to the voice of his spirit, he will lead us by his spirit. I don't mean it to sound like you're going to hear God's voice in a very clear way 16 times a day. I'm just saying that when you need it, he'll be there for you. He will lead you. So do what God leads you to. And when when he does lead you, do it. It might be scary. He might ask you to talk to somebody about Jesus. It's like, I don't want to do that. It's scary. Do what God leads you to do by his spirit. The third one, share God's truth to those God leads you to. Simeon shared God's truth. Anna shared God's truth. It was her calling. Whenever God leads you to share God's truth, in the midst of his body as we seek to encourage one another, to unbelievers around us, to those God would lead us to because they need to know Jesus, share God's truth. And the last one is the key and the foundation of all of them. Don't just do those because... This is what we see we're supposed to do in God's word. The last one is walk in close relationship with him. And we're find out that you are doing all these things because you love God. You're so thankful for Jesus that he came and died on the cross for me. I know him now as Savior and Lord, and I want to do what's right, and I want to do all these things, not because I have to, but because I want to. And I believe God, and I trust in him, and I know he wants what's best for me. Walk in close relationship with him. So we wrap this up. Let me just ask you, what have you been doing while you're waiting? Whatever you're waiting for. There may be certain things that God has pointed out to you in this sermon and you know in your heart that you've put on hold because you're waiting on God. It's like, well, God, I'm not going to do that until I hear from you. And sometimes God does ask us to wait on certain things, but I'm talking about something you know he wants you to do, but it's like, God, you're not giving me an answer. You haven't brought this about. You haven't fulfilled that promise. So I'm not going to, you know, there may be certain things that God right now is speaking to. I have no idea. God's not giving me any revelation, but I just feel like I should emphasize this. There may be certain things that you know that you are supposed to be doing, and you've put them on hold because you've been waiting. And God says, don't put it on hold while you're waiting. My time's perfect. I'll answer that prayer. I'll fulfill that promise. I'll direct you. I'll lead you. But you go ahead and do what you know you're supposed to do. How could you use your time more productively? I don't mean by time management, but I'm talking about the time of your life. Are you doing everything God wants you to do? The good news is that God doesn't want you to run ragged 24-7. He wants us to have times of rest. He wants us to have times of enjoyment, godly enjoyment. But he has a plan and purpose for each of us. Are we using our time wisely while we are waiting? There may be those of you that are watching online or listening or maybe even someone here that you don't even have a relationship with Jesus. As Simeon said, I have seen your salvation. God's salvation is all wrapped up in Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. His name means God will save. And if you need a Savior today, I trust, I, I, I pray that you will turn to him. Surrender your life to him. Put your trust in him. Ask him to forgive you of your sins, to come into your life and help you to walk closely with him. Let's all stand together. I'm going to invite my wife, Pastor Jan, 
The elders that we have here that are available to come down. Worship team's going to lead in the song. You can sing along. I always encourage you to meditate on what God is speaking to you about and respond to that appropriately. But we will be here for prayer if you would like us to pray with you for anything, for yourself or for somebody else you have a burden for. You want us to pray with you. And in a few moments, I'll come back to close the service in prayer. Oh, Lord, may that song be our prayer. That we want you, what you have for us, what you want us to do, your purposes in and through our lives, your impact, your direction, your instruction for everything, Lord God. That we just want you and what you want and nothing else, Lord God. God, none of us have a pure heart, not yet. Purify our hearts, Lord God. Purify our motives. Help us with the things that are difficult. Help us with the things that you spoke to us about today. Because if we're not living that way yet, chances are it's because there's an obstacle, it's hard, or something in our flesh is putting up a fight or whatever it is. But I pray that you'd help us to respond to your word today by walking closely with you, fulfilling your purposes in our lives, listening to your voice, doing what you ask, walking in obedience, living for you, and living with you, Lord God. Thank you that you are always with us. You're always working on our behalf, looking out for us. You never leave us or forsake us. Thank you, Lord. Lord, you know what we're going to face this week. And Lord, even though we don't know it all, we can face it in confidence, knowing that we're going to face it with you. I pray that as we leave this place today that you would help us to walk in that confidence walk in that power and anointing you've promised us to do your will and to touch other people's lives may people see Jesus in us may we have a good impact a good influence meet every need help us all to draw close to you father we thank you and we praise you for it in Jesus name and everybody said amen We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org.